Well, I would say that 5% is ability and 95% is what's between your ears. And the most successful athletes in the world have that other 95%. And when you get to the highest levels, everybody can play. Everybody can skate. Everybody can pass. Everybody can shoot. All that. And what separates the average guys from the elite guys is mental attitude, mental health, all that stuff, right? Because I had faced a lot of adversity early on in life, it built a lot of resilience in me. And that resilience is what carried me through my whole entire life. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Theo Fleury, former NHL All-Star, Olympic gold medalist, Stanley Cup winner, and currently the president of Fleury 14. Theo Fleury had the opportunity to have a long career in the NHL. He had a 15-year career logging over 1,000 games and 1,000 points. His hockey resume also includes seven All-Star appearances, an Olympic gold medal, and a Stanley Cup. Theo enjoys all of his hockey memories and accolades, but also takes a great deal of pride in what he does today. Theo's mission statement is to help as many people get to where they want to go. It has taken shape in many forms, whether meeting people for a brief moment on the street or as a dynamic, inspirational speaker with the intention of creating healing through conversation. His compassionate spirit allows others to feel safe and whole through experiencing his own vulnerability. Theo has been awarded the Canadian Humanitarian Award, the Queen's Jubilee Medallion, and is an honorary chief and recipient of the Aboriginal Inspire Award. In 2014, Theo was awarded with an honorary doctorate in science from the University of Guelph Humber for outstanding contributions to the mental health of Canadians. Most recently, Theo was bestowed with a second honorary doctorate in laws from Brandon University in recognition for his contributions combating child sex abuse and for his outstanding efforts to promote healing and recovery. Listen in and hear about Theo's time playing hockey and battling his own demons, how that has led him to a path to help others and himself pursue excellence in all areas of life. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the awesome pleasure of being with one of my favorite players from the NHL, Theo Fleury, former NHL All-Star, Olympic gold medalist, and currently the president of Fleury 14. Thanks for joining us today, Theo. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Thanks for asking me to do this. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. Just for those people who may not be NHL fans mm-hmm. or remember, thankfully I do, so I'm kind of dating myself, I guess, to some degree, but can you tell our listeners about your path to the NHL? How'd that take place? Oh, man. So it's, it's a long story for sure. <laughs> I started playing hockey when I was five years old, and almost immediately from the first time I stepped on the ice, I fell 
madly and deeply in love with the game of hockey. And uh, not only was it fun, but uh, I was really good at it. And so I would say the majority of my childhood was spent playing hockey, but also playing lots of other sports as well. And, and I love the camaraderie. I loved uh, being part of a team. I loved winning, you know, <laughs> and I grew up in a small town in Manitoba where, you know, if you had a set of hockey gear and you were six years old, guess what? You're on the team because <laughs> we, <didn't, laughs> we didn't have enough players. And so I ended up playing with the same 13 guys for about nine years. We played together and we had the same three coaches for that whole entire time. Wow. And yeah, we created this amazing winning environment. And, uh, you know, it was built on respect and uh, love and caring for teammates and consequences. And mm -hmm. yeah, it was amazing. And then up in Canada, we have a league called the Canadian Hockey League. And that's where 65% of all NHLers come from. And uh, when I was 14, I got drafted into that league. And then a couple of years later, I made my debut in the Western Hockey League with the Moose Jaw hmm. Warriors. And yeah, and then basically the rest is history. You know, got drafted in 1987 by the Calgary Flames. Uh, played my first game in the NHL January 1st, 1989. Six months later, was carrying the Stanley Cup around the Montreal <laughs> Forum. And uh, yeah, and then you know, I played thousand games had a thousand points you know was part of some really great teams uh you know along the way but more importantly uh i played for canada 10 times in my career which is probably uh the majority of my highlights in hockey come from those experiences i was uh captain of canada's national junior team in 1988 and we won the, the world junior in moscow right 1991 won a canada cup which is now the World Cup of Hockey. And then uh, in 2002, topped it all off with uh, winning a gold medal at the Olympics in Salt Lake City. So, yeah, it was, you know, everything I have in this life has give, been given to me, uh, you know, from the game of hockey. And I'm very, very blessed and very fortunate to, like I said, to have had so many incredible experiences in the game and been around some of the greatest leaders you know, our sport has ever produced and learned a lot from their type of leadership and, uh, you know, have carried those lessons uh, into my life as, uh, you know, like you said, the president of Flurry 14. Right. Was your love of hockey, did it basically come from the fact that you lived where you lived or was there somebody that kind of gave you the bug for hockey yeah. to kind of get you first started? Mm -hmm. How did that all start? Well, my dad was uh, an incredible hockey player as well. So 1963, he was uh, signed by the New York Rangers, if you can believe that. And the summer before he was going to training camp, uh, he was playing in a baseball game and uh, broke his leg in that game. And so his dream of playing in the NHL was figuratively and literally shattered that day. Wow. Both my parents struggled with addiction. And so I grew up in a home that was very chaotic and sometimes violent and, and all that. And so the rink was my escape from there. And so that's why I spent the majority of my time at the rink was I didn't have to be at home and I didn't have to be in all this chaos and insanity that was going on. And that's where I really developed my God-given abilities and talents. And what's interesting was 
you know, I'm also an author as well. I've written a couple books that have done really well, but I read a book by a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, sure. And it's called The Outliers. Yes, sir. Great book. And, uh, you know, in the book, there's a chapter that basically where he says, uh, you know, if you want to be the elite of the elite of the elite in whatever field we choose, you know, we got to put in 10,000 hours. I remember reading that chapter in the book and then I closed the book and I reflected on my childhood and basically that's where my 10,000 hours happened from the time I was five until I was 15 when I left home to pursue a professional hockey career. You know, I put in those 10,000 hours of practice. And so on my sport, it's a very reactionary sport. And when I stepped on the ice, I didn't have to think. And, you know, I think that's the biggest reason why I had so much success was I didn't have to think about where I was supposed to be on the ice. And those 10,000 hours that I put in basically taught my body to react in whatever situation was going to be thrown at me on the ice. Yeah, that's a great book. And I think there's a lot of great lessons out of that book. And that's certainly one of them, no matter what, whether it's, you know, wanting to be in the NHL or being a baseball player or being a business person, you know, you have to put in those 10,000 hours. I want to spend some time both on the personal side and on the business side, but I want to start on the uh, hockey side. I want to start with the hockey and then move over to where you are today. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some of those highlights of your career, right? Being an all-star, Stanley Cup champion, gold medalist, et cetera. A thousand games, which, you know, was a huge milestone, a thousand points, huge milestone in, in the NHL. So you've accomplished a lot. It seems like from what you said earlier, though, one of your, I guess, most prideful moments is playing for Canada, for your country. Yeah. With all the great accomplishments in the NHL, Mm -hmm. why is playing for your country, you know, I have an idea, but why is playing for your country so important and such a memorable thing for most people. Well, as you know, in Canada, hockey's like religion. Okay. <laughs> this is true. And uh, those of us who've had the fortunate pleasure of playing for our country, you know, we're considered like bishops, you know? <laughs> and whenever there's a big hockey tournament, whether that's the World Championships or World Cup of Hockey or Olympics or whatever it is, Basically, for those two weeks, the whole entire country shuts down, okay? And they all head down to the liquor store, and they buy their favorite beverage of choice, and they sit in front of their TVs for basically two weeks and cheer us on. Because every kid's dream who plays hockey in Canada is to maybe one day put on that jersey and represent your country. So when I was 16, Hockey Canada, which is the governing body of of all international hockey in Canada, they created a program called the Program of Excellence. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to get young people accustomed to playing international hockey. And so I was one of the first kids through this program. And there would be guys like Adam Graves would have been part of that program, Joe Sackick, Trevor Linden. So, you know, there was a lot of us that started in this program. And then obviously, as you progressed, you got to play against international competition. So when I was 16, uh, the Russians came over to Canada and they toured Canada 
And so that was the very first time that I was able to put on that jersey. And I can tell you that the pride I felt was pretty incredible. And, and so I played under, under 17, under 18, two world juniors, two world championships, two world cups of hockey, and two Olympic games. And like I said, I got to travel. I got to see other places in the world. Sure. I learned more from traveling than I ever did sitting in a desk (laughs) at school. And so, yeah, and this program, it has been consistent this whole entire time. And uh, the World Junior Tournament, when it's held in Canada, is probably one of the biggest events of the year. And uh, we have a major sports network here in, in Canada that covers it like top to bottom 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so, like I said, you know, when, when you put on that jersey, not only you're representing your country and representing yourself, but you're also representing, you know, the millions of hockey fans that there are in Canada. And so, and in Canada, we don't play for silver medals or bronze medals. <laughs> you know, we only play for gold medals. Right. But, you know, as an elite athlete, that's what you train your whole entire life for is those opportunities to play in the biggest games and be a part of the biggest situations. And uh, like I said, I had that opportunity 10 times in, in my career. And uh, yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's just it was incredible. Yeah, we've had the opportunity to have a we have a place in Lake Placid. So at times when the World Juniors are held in Montreal, yeah. We usually, you know, typically USA Canada will be right around either right around New Year's. It's New Year's Eve. Yeah. Every World Junior. Yeah. Yeah. We'll head up there for the game and head back. And it's a great experience to watch at that level. So I know it was a short tenure, but you did have a time with the New York Rangers, one of my favorite teams. So I got to ask you, what is one of your most memorable moments from being a New York (laughs) Ranger? (laughs) Well, I just think the whole entire experience was pretty incredible. You know, to put on the red, white, and blue of the uh, Rangers, to play at Madison Square Garden 42 times a year, 41 times a year. And I don't think in my whole entire time as a NHL player that I got treated better as a athlete and as a human being than playing for the New York Rangers, uh, first-class organization. And, uh, you know, the fans were just you know the best you know like i said to play at madison square garden where people like the rolling stones and uh muhammad ali fought there you know it's just like you know the epic place to play and and uh you know and then getting an opportunity to play with mike richter and brian leach and adam graves mark messier mike york eric lindros you know it was uh Great experience. You know, unfortunately, we didn't have the success uh, that we thought we should have. Right. And basically what I tell people is uh, for three years, I spent the majority of uh, my time on the ice in my own zone, <laughs> you know, picking the puck out of the net and giving it to the referee. We we had real tough time defensively and uh, we didn't make the playoffs in the three years that, that I was there. And so that still doesn't leave a very good taste in right. my mouth. But living in New York was so incredible. The energy, I was there during 9-11 and went through that whole experience with the city and saw how incredibly resilient and tough the people of New York were and, and 
got opportunity to spend some time with Port Authority, NYPD, NYFD, and uh, yeah, to and you know I I'll never forget that first game that we played after nine eleven and seeing all the first responders and police and firemen were, were on the ice and uh, you know we actually played Buffalo and and both teams had New York on their jerseys so. Um, yeah. And, and that uh, was the iconic picture with uh, Mark Messier yeah. putting on the FDNY yeah. helmet, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild to be a part of that. So, yeah, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, you talked about earlier some of your personal challenges and struggles with mom and dad and how hockey was an outlet for you to kind of stay kind of the course and, and getting your 10,000 hours. When you ended up moving on to the higher levels, did you feel that hockey continued to help you deal with those challenges or did it actually add more pressure to your, you know, your situation because of it? Mm, I always prided myself as a guy who could handle a lot of pressure. And when the game's close, you know, I wanted the puck on my stick, you know, and have that opportunity to to help the team win but as i got older i started taking a look at my past with my parents and then also uh you know i'm a sexual abuse survivor as well and uh you know when i was in new york i started to take a look at that stuff because i was uh, struggling with addiction as a coping mechanism to uh, sort of suppress these uh, negative emotions that i was experiencing at the time and really that's when my uh, my mental illness showed up is when I was in New York. And so focusing on the off-ice stuff and then still trying to manage the on-ice stuff became quite a challenge. And what was that? Like 20, almost 20 years ago, I was in New York and nobody was talking about mental health at that time. Mm -hmm. And especially in the hockey world. Right. And so, yeah, I I really struggled um, off and on when I was in New York. And, you know, I started going to treatment facilities and doing a lot of therapy and a whole bunch of stuff. And so, and ultimately in 2003, you know, I got kicked out of the NHL because of my behavior. And so I left the game and 16 years ago, I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth, ready to pull the trigger and end my life. Not because I wanted to die, but because I was completely exhausted from living in, you know, emotional pain and suffering for the majority of my life. And I tried everything on the planet to get rid of this. And uh, and then it wasn't too long after that failed suicide attempt that I got sober. Right. And I've been sober now for a little over 15 years. And what's happened because of my sobriety is it put me in this place where I sort of live on a daily basis. And that's in the field of trauma, mental health, and addiction. And uh, I've been in this space now for 13 years. And like I said, I'm, I'm an author as well. I've written a couple books. I've probably done 800 speeches all over North America talking about the subject of trauma, mental health, and addiction. And I also belong to a global mental health organization in New York called We're All a Little Crazy. And we have a, a weekly podcast uh, that we do talking about mental illness. And yeah, so it's probably been the most rewarding part of my life. And I'm now looked at as a leader in the space of trauma, mental health and addiction. And I've helped millions of people come to grips with their own 
traumatic experiences and sure. uh, and all that. So, so let me share this with you because I, I don't know that we've uh, had any conversation. I don't even know that I would say you don't even know this about me. But number one is thank you for sharing your story, and you'll mm-hmm. understand even more so in a minute. But I sit on the national board for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is the uh, leader in uh, suicide prevention and mental health. Yeah. And I have for, I guess, the past 12 years. I lost my brother-in-law in 2004 to suicide, which many of our listeners know. Mm-hmm. And I become a staunch advocate for mental health and suicide prevention for those reasons. Wow. And we've had an impact. My wife and I together with the support of a lot of people have raised over $1.7 million for the organization, helped a lot of research. So this is something that's very important to me. And I think one of the things is, and I think one of the biggest things, as you mentioned earlier, is, you know, 20 years ago, people weren't talking about this at all. Zero, nothing, especially sports organizations, you know, kind of got brushed under the rug as much Mm -hmm. as possible. But a lot of that's changing. I feel like we're in the midst of some of the best changes in the mental health space that we've seen, at least since I've been involved. And I credit that a lot of that to people like you and the Michael Phelps of the world and the other football players that have come out recently and are Mm -hmm. talking about Solomon Thomas, who's now with the uh, LA Raiders, you know, talking about their own struggles, Dak Prescott. I mean, the list is going on and on. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, we had a list of maybe one, but when people like you are coming out who were in the limelight leaders looked up to and, and athletes, I think it's so helpful to get that conversation out in the open because people can identify and say, Hey, I'm having a similar struggle. If he got help, and he went for support and is willing to talk about this. Why shouldn't I? Right. And it's people like you that I feel are really opening up that conversation more so than ever. And and I applaud you and thank you for that because mm-hmm. I'm sure you're impacting millions of people. And some of it you realize and a lot of it you don't because yeah. you'll never hear from those people. Absolutely. So you don't have it very often where you have somebody who had the success that you had as a professional athlete. And this is the Midland money mindset. So how important is it as an athlete and your mental health? You know, how important is it to have that to remain focused, especially as an athlete at your level? Well, I would say that 5% is ability and 95% is what's between your ears. And the most successful athletes in the world have that other 95%. And when you get to the highest levels, everybody can play. Everybody can skate. Everybody can pass. Everybody can shoot. All that. And what separates the average guys from the elite guys is mental attitude, mental health, all that stuff, right? And because I had faced a lot of adversity early on in life, it built a lot of resilience in me. And, and that resilience is what carried me through my whole entire life is that I have sort of this built in mechanism that no matter what you throw at me, I will figure it out and I will end up coming out on top because of that. And so, you know, when I speak to people about mental health, I take a different angle and pain is the greatest motivator that we have for change. And although it feels really uncomfortable, I see it as an opportunity to learn and as an opportunity to grow. And I would say also that trauma plays a role in mental illness 
and addiction. I come at mental illness and addiction issues from the place of trauma because trauma, when we experience trauma, whatever that looks like, you know, it doesn't have to be as extreme as mine. I would say the whole entire planet at some point in their life is going to experience trauma. Sure. And that trauma leaves us in emotional pain and suffering. And that emotional pain and suffering is what I call mental illness. So how do we deal with this sort of pain that, that nobody can see, right? Nobody can see emotional right. pain, right? right? And those of us who have it, we're really good at wearing lipstick, I call it, right? Mm-hmm. When we leave mm-hmm. the front doors, you know, we're dressed well. When people approach us and ask us how we are, we say fine or good, you know? Because that's and, what we're supposed to say, right? right? <laughs> and so how do we deal with it? Well, we tend to gravitate towards the dark side of life and get involved in addictions, right? Drugs, alcohol, food, sex, gambling, workaholism, whatever it is. And we use addiction as a coping mechanism to suppress or numb out from you know those negative emotions. But in my case, eventually you get to the place where you got to decide, am I going to die? Or am I going to live? And I wanted to live. But I knew if I continued down the road and down the path that I was going down, that death was going to be the ultimate sacrifice. Right. And because I wanted to live, I really became vulnerable. And uh, I really believe that that's the key to all of this. And it's having conversations like this where we're able to talk about our trauma that really helps people come to grips with their own, or, or it helps them find the courage and the strength to talk about their own trauma. Because I would say that trauma, mental health, and addiction is the biggest epidemic on the planet. Okay? I, bigger I than COVID. Agree. It's it's I way, way bigger than COVID. Well, it was a problem before COVID, and yeah. it'll be a problem yeah. after, for yeah. sure. And yeah. we haven't really done a great job in the space of creating safe environments for people to talk about this stuff. And so when a guy like me or an NFL football player or a Michael Phelps comes out and says, I'm really struggling, you mm-hmm. know, that's vulnerability. That's courage, right? Agreed. And what that courage does, because courage is contagious, is it allows other people or gives other people the permission to be able to talk about what they need to talk about. And another thing I find is there is not enough skill in the professional world of mental illness. There's not enough skilled people to help with the epidemic, right? There's right. so many people that are struggling that the mental health system is completely run over, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so, instead of being proactive, we're being reactive in the space. Mm-hmm. And hence, we have the epidemic of mental illness on the planet. And then you throw COVID into the mix and COVID is the most traumatic event that's happened since World War II. So for a guy like me, who's already had trauma, just added another layer of trauma. And so at the beginning of COVID, like I really struggled with my mental illness, you know, depression hit and my anxiety was really high and all that. And so Thank God I had a toolbox uh, full of tools that I use on a daily basis to sort of keep my mental illness at bay. But uh, yeah, it's been a difficult time and I've dealt more 
in the suicide space in the last probably eight or nine months than I have the whole 13 years I've been in this space. And so that's hard work and it's not fun to uh, have to work with people who are thinking about, uh, you know, taking their own lives. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that I hear you referred to as is an agent of change, right? Yes. And what I want to do is kind of give our listeners an idea of what something they can take away from our conversation, implement today, and potentially improve their mental health. Yeah. You know, are there a couple of quick takeaways that we could leave with the listeners that are easy to implement, something they can turn off this show today and kind of implement to help improve their mental health and be on the path to uh, positive change? I would say the biggest discovery that I've sort of had is that you can't do this on your own. It's absolutely impossible to do it on your own. And I often say the day I asked for help was the day I saved my own life was the day I asked for help. And it doesn't mean you're weak. If you ask for help, it actually means you're a person of tremendous courage and and character. So that's one of the biggest steps you can take is realizing, you know, I can't do this on my own. And you can't outthink it. Like you cannot outthink it. It's just as easy as you have to, you need, you need help. (laughs) You need somebody to walk you through this. Because I mean, I'm a very smart, intelligent guy and I try to outthink it. Right. And obviously uh, struggle because I thought I could do it on my own. Or I thought I was a tough guy. Right. And of all the things that's brought me to my knees, that was it. Mm-hmm. I consider myself to be, you know, a tough SOB. But on the other side of the coin, I also look at myself as being vulnerable. And right. uh, that's a big, big key to all of this too. Is But the stigma is so thick in this space that you can almost cut it with a knife. And as an advocate and as an activist in the space, every day, that's all I do is fight stigma. You know, is try to educate the media as to how to talk to and talk about mental illness. And you know, what's really frustrating is, you know, you have all of these mental health campaigns and they all start with the tagline one in five or one in four, right? And I think that only adds to the stigma. Okay. Okay. Because I say to myself, why are we shaming the one person who has mental illness? And in my experience and in my research, it's five and five. It's all of us. At some point in your life, you're going to have some sort of whatever with mental health. And so we need to change the conversation. And that's what I try and do every single day is change the conversation and take a holistic approach to mental illness because there are 10,000 different ways to heal from mental illness. Right. And it's up to you to do your own research and find your own personal formula that helps you sort of live life on life's terms. And there's so much great stuff out there. You know, there's all kinds of wearable stuff now that can help. There is music stuff that's incredible, you know, and then your basic, uh, Exercise, eating well, sleeping well, yoga, meditation, all of these things that are sort of considered foo-foo um, should be part of your, your own personal formula. Yeah. And if you don't try it, right, you yeah. don't know if it works. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, if I do yoga, it may work, it may not. But until I try it and commit to it for a period of time, I really don't know if it works or yeah. not. 
So you got to kind of navigate that whole space and, and figure out what works best for you. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what's making you feel better and not worse. Yeah. And you got to commit to it for a period well, of time. And, and I always say, find your tribe, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't do this alone. Right. Well, that was your point number one, right? I think that's the biggest takeaway. And, you know, I've been in this space for a long time. And the cheapest, most effective kind of therapy that doesn't cost much or anything at all is a little thing called group therapy, where you get a bunch of people in a room who are all struggling and you use vulnerability to create safety. And then once you have safety in the room, people just start popping up and and telling their stories. And really, for me, that's the number one step in this whole entire process is using your voice and talking about either your trauma or your daily struggle. And everybody in the room understands where there's no judgment. There's no pointing the fingers. There's none of that. It's just compassion, empathy, and love. And that's, for me, one of the most effective ways to help with whatever struggle you have. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, it's one of those things that, again, until you try it and Mm -hmm. you're not going to see the value of it, you know, if you're going to sit back and judge whether it's good or not, it's not really going to tell you if it is. So you might as well give it a try. And it, you know, a lot of people, I I would imagine maybe even yourself go into that thinking, oh, this isn't going to help me. And then after a short period of time, you start realizing, hey, you know what? I feel a little bit better telling the story Mm -hmm. and sharing and being open. I run an online group twice a month where we talk about trauma, mental health, and addiction. And uh, we have 200 members. And uh, it's some of the most incredible conversations that I'm able to facilitate between people and around people. So it's fantastic. That's awesome. So listen, what's up next for Theo Fleury? (laughs) What's the next big thing? Anything in the works? Yeah, I always got lots of stuff (laughs) in the works. You know, I'm sort of a serial entrepreneur. So... My main focus now is in the mental health space, and I think the next big wave and the next big turn in mental health is going to come from the psychedelic world. You know, there's so much incredible research coming out of, uh, you know, microdosing different substances uh, that, you know, we used in the addiction space for for a long time. (laughs) Right. But... uh, It's ironic how that works, Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy, but it's... uh, I would say, you know, in the last eight months, I've, I've never had more phone calls from different psychedelic companies that are looking for me to be a spokesperson or investor or whatever it is. And so uh, right now, I think everybody's going through the process of trials and getting this stuff legalized. There are a lot of great, amazing doctors who have jumped on board. Mm-hmm. I know that this has been a big topic at AFSP in regards to the research that's been going on in this area for probably the last five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And now we're starting to see some of those outcomes coming out and some of those papers being written. And there's a lot of substantive information that's coming from these trials and whatnot. So it's going to be interesting to see. I think you're going to see a lot of changes coming in the next one to three to five years in this area that it's going to change mental health. It's going to absolutely change mental health and have a significant impact. Well, we'll have to use this as a uh, place marker for that and look back on that. So Theo, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. And we end every show asking all of our guests the same question. And that is, what did you do today 
that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? <laughs> well, every day, you know, I get an opportunity to work and live in this space and uh, I get an opportunity to help somebody. Helping is healing. Obviously, the more people I've helped, the more I've healed myself. It's that simple. And so I've put myself out there and God has not failed me once in the last 13 years, there's always somebody who reaches out and is asking for help. And so that's what gets me out of bed. That's what, you know, brings me peace, joy, happiness, and serenity is the ability to take somebody who's broken and uh, help them rebuild their lives. Awesome. Very admirable, admirable work. And I'm sure as much as you help them, you're helping yourself. So it's a true win-win and uh, sounds like something great to wake up to each and every day. It is. And uh, Theo, with that, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on. We're going to have the information in the show notes, but if folks want to reach out to you, learn more about you, learn more about Flurry 14, what's the best way for them to do that? So my website is theoflurry.life and I'm on all social media platforms. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at theoflurry14. Send me a private message and uh, I'll get back to you within probably an hour. Great. Great. Well, listen, thanks again, Theo. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And remember, make it a great day. I want to thank Theo Fleury for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Theo has taken his career, an impressive one at that, as an NHL hockey player and is using it as a platform to help others today. Theo struggled during his career and life and now has made a commitment to help others pursue excellence in all areas of life. He is just another great example of how sharing personal experiences can help mental health struggles come out of the darkness and into the light. Theo shows those that suffer from mental illness and or depression that it's okay to seek help and proactively work to get better, and that is extremely admirable. Theo can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.